Open your Bibles, if you would, to the second chapter of the book of Acts. As you do, I might ask you if you have ever heard of the failure to thrive syndrome. Failure to thrive syndrome. Anybody heard of that? You usually have a few people in each service that have. That term, I guess, was at least affixed to some children in the Eastern Bloc countries. When the Soviet Union dissolved in the late 80s, and people had access to the Eastern European bloc nations that had once been part of the Soviet orbit, they were shocked. When they went into those orphanages that were really warehousing babies and small children, they didn't have the people available, the staffing available, they didn't have money for food and medicine, so they would just place these infants and often beyond toddlers in cribs and diaper them and come infrequently to feed them and to change them. But these little children didn't have anyone to talk to them or to hold them, certainly not to cuddle them as we do normally with babies. And they began to show signs of withdrawal. And they would eventually be able, unable even to respond to people around them. They would just go into themselves, and tragically, many of them died. It was called Failure to Thrive Syndrome. I thought about the church and how this is God's family, and we have new people born again, born into the family of God, placed in the family, and, and all too often, whether we've been in the family of God for a short time or a long time, we can suffer in a spiritual sense from that same Syndrome, failure to thrive, because we don't have the connection that God intended us to have. We need that. We need that in our families. And often we don't find that in our human families. And we certainly then can find it in the family of God. And that's where God intended that we would find the deepest, most intimate fellowship and connection that would be available, that would heal us, and that would bring us to maturity and to help us to become the people that would thrive in our Christian experience. Well, we're going to talk about connection for a few moments this morning and see it in the lives of the early believers in the book of Acts. But before we do there, go there, I want to review just momentarily and go back to last week because we're in a series, four-part series, called Keala O Yesu, The Path of Jesus. This is a pathway that we've constructed at Kamaki Christian just to help remind us that as we become followers of Jesus, we don't stay in the same place. We move on. We, we grow. We add these elements to our lives. And these four that we've set forth are not exhaustive, but they give us a sense of what it means to be a disciple. We looked last week at love God. We put it in the form of a baseball diamond because uh, we want to be reminded that you don't stay on first, you move on, but you got to get to first. You don't go directly to second. And the first base for a disciple is to love God. And we talked about the reason we love God is because he loved us. We respond to his love when we understand it with love for him. And we express that in worship and in joyful obedience. We talked last week about our worship needs to be with our heart, soul, and mind because that's our 
love reflected to him. And worship just isn't something we do when we sing some songs on Sunday morning. No, worship should characterize our lives throughout the week. Living a life of worship and joyful obedience that we said begins when we hear that good news and respond to his call to be baptized. That was last week. Now, I preface this morning's message with that because only as we love God are we going to be motivated to turn off our cell phones. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> not so. Only as we love God are we going to be motivated to connect with one another, right? That's why we want to hang out together is because we have a, 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 just a fellowship in the love of God. And so that's what I want us to consider. How did they do that? Why did they do that? Well, we call it connect with one another. And here's a phrase uh, that we use for second base. It says, we connect with one another through Bible study, prayer, and caring in Ohana groups. That's our groups that meet during the week. And we go deeper in our fellowship with one another. That's not the only way to do it. And you know what? You can even be in an Ohana group and not be connected. You can just be attending a Bible study. Uh, or you can come to church and not have any kind of a connection. But what is it that helps us genuinely connect? I think these truths out of this first century church are in your bulletin. Here's the first. We connect with one another as we respond in faith and obedience to the gospel. Finding ourselves joined in the family of God. The church was birthed in the second chapter of Acts. Just a little background, most of you know this, but for any who would not, I mean, Jesus has spent three and a half years with his disciples. He's trained them. And then he comes to the point of the cross. And that last week takes up a third of the gospel of Mark, just telling the events of that as he'd prepared them for this time. And he gives his life on the cross voluntarily in exchange for all those who'd put their trust in him He's buried. Three days later, he rises again, spends 40 days with those disciples. And then he tells them just before his ascension back into heaven to wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. And so they're waiting and they're praying. And 10 days later, it comes. The promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, falls upon them and they have tongues of flames on their heads. They're speaking in languages they've never learned before, the dialects of the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire, and they're praising God in those languages. They go out into the streets and people hear them speaking in their own dialects. And that draws a crowd immediately. And then Peter gets up and he shares the truth. The gospel of Christ. The good news of Jesus. But the bad news first was all the prophets had said he would come and he did. But when he did, you missed him. And not only that, you rejected him and you crucified him. When they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. That means they were just filled with remorse about what they had done. And they cried out, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for as many as are far off. And they did respond. 
Verse 41, chapter 2. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That was like a Billy Graham crusade on steroids. Now, Jews were baptized that day. These people didn't plan to be baptized because the Jewish people of that day considered baptism for the Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish in their faith and practice. But not Jews. They didn't need to be baptized. They were born into the family of God. And now Peter says, oh, no. You're not in the family of God until you repent, change your mind, and you demonstrate that by baptism in the name of Jesus, then you're going to receive your forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they responded. And when they did, they found that they were in the same family. It was a new family that would be comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And not only Jews and Gentiles, but all kinds of Jews and Gentiles. Because some years later, after Saul of Tarsus met the risen Lord and got saved, and you can read about that in the book of Acts 2, chapter 9, here was a man who was a young and upcoming rabbi, brilliant, learned, but he hated Christians. And he was, no doubt, a racist. He prayed every morning that he thanked God that he wasn't born a Gentile. And uh, he wanted to destroy those who followed this Nazarene, Jesus. But now he gets saved and he has a whole different understanding. In fact, when he wrote uh, to the church up in Asia Minor in Galatia, he said this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul, now, as he was known, this once fiercely nationalistic and prejudiced man realized he was in the family of God with all kinds of people and that it was their faith in Christ and their obedience to him that had brought them into this family and now that was their identity, Christian. This Independence Day weekend, I thought, well, what's something that relates to that from, from our nation's experience? And I was reminded of a book I read several years ago called Mornings on Horseback. It was a biography of Teddy Roosevelt, who was our 29th president. Fascinating story of his life. Well... When he was out in South Dakota Territory in 1886, 4th of July celebration was coming up, the 110th anniversary of the nation, he was asked to give a speech. And he did, and it was a powerful speech. I remembered it. And so I went back to that book and looked at it. And I want to share with you out of his speech. I'm not going to read you the whole speech, but as I've said in other services, probably more than I should, but I think it's worth it. Listen to this. Teddy Roosevelt, think of, hear his voice, okay? He said, I do not undervalue for one moment our material prosperity. Like all Americans, I like big things, big prairies, big forests and mountains, big wheat fields, railroads, and herds of cattle too, big factories, steamboats, and everything else. But we must keep steadily in mind that no people were ever yet benefited by riches 
if their prosperity corrupted their virtue. It is of more importance that we should show ourselves honest, brave, truthful, and intelligent than that we should own all the railways and grain elevators in the world. We have fallen heirs to the most glorious heritage a people ever received. And each one must do his part if we wish to show that the nation is worthy of its good fortune. Here we are not ruled over by others, as in the case of Europe. We rule ourselves. All American citizens, whether born here or elsewhere, whether of one creed or another, stand on the same footing. We welcome every honest immigrant, no matter from what country he comes, provided only that he leaves off his former nationality and remains neither Celt nor Saxon, neither Frenchman nor German, but becomes an American, desirous of fulfilling in good faith the duties of American citizenship. Wow, that was 1886. And then in 1915, just 100 years ago, he made another statement which was provocative, and it's reflected here. He said, there is no room in this country for hyphenated Americanism. The one absolutely certain way of bringing this nation to ruin, of preventing all possibility of its continuing to be a nation at all, would be to permit it to become a tangle of squabbling nationalities. Provocative, prophetic, and true, I believe. I think that has fragmented America to where today we celebrate hyphenated Americanism. Whether we're Mexican-American or African-American or we're Japanese-American or Italian-American, no, we're Americans. And we should take pride in our heritage and in our culture and even preserve it in our families, but we're Americans first and foremost, not hyphenated Americans. There are people today that would call themselves Muslim-Americans who would say, we don't like the laws of this land. In fact, we don't want to live under the law of this land. We want to live under Sharia law. Boy, are we making some mistakes in America when we fail to realize, no, we'll dissolve this nation in all kinds of fragments unless we become first and foremost Americans who understand their true identity. As destructive as that is for a nation, it would be disastrous for the church. In fact, it's an impossibility. When you come into the family of God, when you come into the kingdom of Christ, there's no hyphenated, there's no previous identification that should now characterize us. That's what we were, but here's who we are and who we are becoming. If we were to be hyphenated Christians and think about where we've come from, we'd have to say different ones of us, well, I'm a thieving Christian or I'm a lustful Christian, or I'm a, a hateful Christian, or I'm a bigoted Christian, an unforgiving Christian, whatever the sins were that characterized, characterized our lives before Christ, that's what we'd be hyphenated with. But no, we're new creatures in Christ. Through our faith in Christ, we have become new people. In fact, the Apostle Peter said, we have a new nature the divine nature within us. And though we still have elements of our old life, we no longer identify with that. We're crucified to that and live daily by faith in who he has now made us. Christians, followers of Jesus, 
And that's the identity that we must cling to and hold in highest allegiance above any other identity. These early believers understood that. Kingdom members, one family from wherever they'd come. Secondly, we connect with one another as we continually devote ourselves to the word and worship, finding deep fellowship with one another. They did. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. These early believers connected. They connected with the apostles' teaching. That's what bound them together and unified them. The apostles' teaching. These apostles who had spent this time with Jesus had listened to his words. They had seen his ministry. They'd seen him die, but they saw him rise again, and they began to put it all together as Jesus taught them through those years and then after his resurrection. And this is what they were passing on to these new believers, telling them what that meant. And, and that truth changed their lives as they believed that and responded in faith. They fellowshiped. That's a word that meant, well, it meant common sharing. It's the Greek word koinonia. They shared these truths in common that changed their lives. It says they were breaking bread and they were devoting themselves to prayer. Breaking bread? Was that the Lord's Supper or was that a meal? Well, scholars aren't quite sure about that. Probably included both. We know they shared meals together daily, house to house. They'd meet in the temple in large crowds, and then they'd break up and go to houses and share their meals and continue to fellowship. They couldn't get enough of each other. They'd go to Solomon's Colonnade, that huge area of the temple, and have praise and worship and listen to teaching, and then... They wouldn't say, well, see you next Sabbath. No, no. They hung out with each other. Not because they had to. Not because a Pastor Peter said, you should join an Ohana group. No. They wanted to get more and more of this understanding of what Jesus had done for them and share this together and rejoice in it and, and talk about what God was doing in their lives. And so they couldn't be kept apart. They had a depth of fellowship that is often missing in our churches. I feel like today many times people go to church but they never experience connection or community. It's just acquaintances. And I, I don't know why but I got to thinking about rivers and rivers where I had grown up and I've made no apology that I'm from Nebraska and I wanted to show you a picture of the Missouri River Basin where, where we grew up. In fact, uh, Dee grew up up here along the Niobrara and the Missouri River, right up here in northeast Nebraska. I grew up down here, south central Nebraska, by that river. Anybody know what that river is? See, I didn't think you would. I, I need to educate you guys here. That is... Well, this is the South Platte River. This is the North Platte River. So this one is the Platte River, 
okay? It stretches for 310 miles from here to Omaha, Council Bluffs. And do you know there are more rivers in Nebraska than in any other state of the Union? More miles of rivers, just a little piece of trivia there. But this river, Platte, do you know what that means? Why would you if you didn't know what it was named? In the next picture, you can see a picture of the Platte River. It means flat, okay? Real creative. And the thing is, it is sometimes a quarter to a half mile wide, but it's about a foot to three feet deep. That's it flat across the plains of Nebraska. Great place for tubing, uh, spearing fish, whatever. But I thought, wow, what a picture all too often of the church where we are wide in our acquaintances but pretty shallow in our community. We need to be more like the Missouri or the Mississippi. Yeah, we need to be deep when it comes to our connection with one another. How do we do that? Ohana groups are a good place to begin because that's when you have a group where you can actually not only talk about scriptures but hear what's happening in one another's lives. Hear the hurts, heartaches, the desires and hopes that people have, the struggles with sin or with work or whatever people feel the safety that they can share with in that context. And then it can actually go beyond that and needs to to where notes are passed during the week, if a phone call is made. Last week, Sue Kim was here, and it was just a year ago in July that she lost her husband. I think she was in this service, and uh, he drowned uh, out at Lake Tahoe. She was back, and uh, she flew out this morning at 10 a.m., but yesterday, her Ohana group met at Kualoa Park. And uh, they've been sharing with her all week. In fact, she stayed with members of that Ohana group. I mean, they have community because they care deeply for one another. That happens in many of our Ohana groups. And that's where we get to contribute to the lives of others. And they contribute to our lives. And we're made healthy and whole and changed. And much happens in that context. And that's what these believers were experiencing because... There was a depth to their fellowship. We want to see more and more of you step into one of those groups. In fact, in September, the third week in September, we're going to launch a series of, well, it's a ministry called Believe. And it'll be three 10-week segments. The first, called Believe, will focus on the foundational doctrines of our faith that many of us maybe don't quite get or understand. During those 10 weeks, in our worship services, in our Sunday school classes, in our small groups, our Ohana groups, in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, we're all going to look at each of those 10 doctrines that form the foundation of our faith and talk about them because they're transformative. In the next 10 weeks that follow, we're going to consider how to act as a result of these doctrines that we believe, building upon that foundation of our beliefs. And then for the third 10-week section, we're going to talk about becoming. Because of what we believe and how we're now attempting to live for the Lord, this is who he wants us to become. I believe that in the process, we're going to see God do some amazing things in bringing us more and more into community around the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And if you're not 
presently in an Ohana group, well, we're going to give you amnesty. Going to encourage you to come in to one of those groups in late September. We'll have sign-ups and just urge you, no longer be content to be isolated from the body of Christ. Seek to be connected and to move into community. If you're in an Ohana group, don't settle for just mediocrity in that either. Go for community, real connection. And some of you have been in Ohana groups for a long time. It's time to move out. God has a call on you for leadership. We want to spawn out new Ohana groups this fall. And I want you to pray about becoming one of those leaders that would be trained to lead an Ohana group of your own. As we see more and more people from our church, our friends, and our community come into those groups because we'll find connection in the same way that these people did here. One more principle that characterized their lives is this. We connect with one another as we share our very lives with one another, continually amazed by his displays of power. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with, anyone, with all as anyone might have need. Some amazing things were taking place. So much that they were kept in a state of awe. They saw God's power. That's what happens when people love God and connect with one another. Lives are changed. Jay Jarman was in our service on Friday night, and uh, I was reminded that he has a group of young men that he meets with. has been for about five years now. It started when his son John was going into his senior year at IAA High School, and Jay and John talked about how they could reach John's friends for Christ. And so John told him, he said, uh, hey, our friendship could go to another level if you guys knew God. He said, my dad knows a lot about God. Why don't you come on over to our house and we'll talk about God and what it means to know him. And they came. That's five years ago. And they met and every one of those kids came to know Christ through that senior year of John's. John left, went to Seattle Pacific University, just graduated, in fact. But Jay kept meeting with those young guys because they stayed. They either went to school here or they worked. And they've grown deeper in their community as well. But, but one night, they were talking about God, his majesty, how awesome he is, and how they ought to be in a sense of awe at who God is and how he's reached out to them. And one of them made the comment, he said, so what, Uncle Jay? Uh, we should be awful. And they said, yeah, that's it. And that became the name of that group. They're the Awful Club. And they still meet on every Monday night. And I thought, that's who we ought to be. Every time we meet, in fact, you ought to tell your friends, come to the Awful Club. We're meeting on Sunday morning. You know, maybe it'll bring more visitors. We will be, in a sense, of awe at his power to the degree that we live in community with one another. I really believe that. We sang it this morning. I surrender. I owe it all to you. I stand in awe of you. Yeah, 
As we're in community, we will. Now, this community, this passage, this text has sometimes been used to tell Christians that they should sell it all and live in community. I was prepared to ask you to sell your property this morning, but I didn't know if you'd go along with that. But seriously, this was a unique historical situation. There were probably a million pilgrims that had come into Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Now they get saved. They don't want to go home. They want to stay and learn what it means to live out this new faith and how they're going to eat. They have great needs. And so believers that were there that saw this, that had the wherewithal, said, we'll sell it. We'll give it because the church, the kingdom matters more than anything. It doesn't mean that people every place, every time need to do the same. Although there are and have been and still are situations in which that is the case times of great need where believers just need to give everything just so they can share together in one another's lives. I think of the refugees that are flooding into Jordan and surrounding nations out of Iraq and Syria. I mean, Christians as well as Muslims, but many of them, it's a minority, but there are tens of thousands of Christians that are fleeing for their lives. Last week, we heard ISIS had killed 143 children because they wouldn't celebrate Ramadan. Well, these Christians thrust together into refugee camps and fleeing for their lives, boy, they're willing to give anything and everything to one another. They can simply survive. Taking from Christians around the world, whatever they can receive, that happens. But to set up a community and say everybody needs to do that, that's been tried. It's been tried in the secular world, even in America, with different towns. They set up, we're going to make a commune out of this. Even Jamestown, they tried it. Even uh, when the pilgrims came, they tried it, but it didn't work. And eventually, Governor Bradford said, forget this commune thing. Everybody's going to have their own kuleana, their own piece of ground, because when people find out they don't have to work and they'll get the same thing, they're not going to work. That's human nature. Though we aren't called to do that. We're called to have the same attitude of willingness to share with brothers and sisters in need. But how are we going to know the needs of one another if we only say hi on Sunday morning and talk about the sports that's happening at that time or the weather? It's not going to happen until we get deeper in community with one another and know the needs that our brothers and sisters have and then can step out in faith and meet those needs. That's when we grow together. When these things happen, when we find and realize, hey, we're in the same family. Even though we come from different places, even though we look differently and we, we have so many differences, no, we're all one family. When we know that, when we realize that uh, we, we grow deep in considering together the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer, and we choose to hang out with one another, when these things happen and when we want to be community and love one another and share our very lives with one another, an amazing thing happens, as did in this first century church. And there it is in your outline. Our connection in Christ creates a contagious community. It's automatic. It happens. 
if we'll love God and we'll love one another like this. Here's what it says in verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It wasn't that they had some great strategy. It wasn't a marketing campaign that they were doing. They were loving God and loving one another, and the unbelievers saw it. In fact, it says in the book of Acts, the unbelievers looked at the church, and they said, Behold how they love one another. Would they say that about us? Think about your week. We do a thing they, they call cocooning, just staying in our own little area, maybe in our homes. We don't have to go out to the movies anymore. We got it all on TV. Sometimes we're just too busy to connect. Sometimes we're afraid to connect. Maybe they'll find out who I really am. I hope so. Because in finding out who we really are, we can, can encourage one another and pray for one another. We need to overcome our fears and our busyness and our reluctances to get connected because of our love for God and our desire to make our lives count for God. So my challenge to each of us this morning is let's don't hang out trying to make it at first base because we love God. Let's choose to connect with one another. And when we do, and as we do, the Lord will add to our numbers day by day those who are being saved. And then he gets the glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for connecting with us in ways that we couldn't even have imagined by becoming one of us. Yet without sin, giving your life that we might be delivered from ours, we give you thanks and we do so in your name. Help us connect to you, to one another, we pray. Amen.